And our scripture reading will be Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And so I invite you to follow along as I read. When Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven came from heaven, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, having heard your word, we ask now as we um, look at this gospel that Mark has penned and that we see your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that this word will uh, touch our hearts and our lives. So help us to see and to understand. And God, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a new series, and this series is about getting to know the greatest person who ever lived. This series and this morning's message is about uncovering the identity of the greatest figure in all of history. There is nothing better in the world than to know this man. How, how's that for a beginning? How's that been for an introduction to a series? So we're in this new series in Mark, and that's how Mark jumps right in. In the very opening verse of this gospel, he wants to get right to the point of who this person, Jesus, is. Ancient writings, like Mark's gospel, begin usually begin in one of two ways. One would be there would be like a formal dedication um, to the person who maybe funded this project. You know, there was a benefactor who uh, contributed some money to a, a project, and then there would be some sort of letter to that per person and then in stating the purpose of the book. You see an example of this in Luke's gospel. 
which Luke comes right after Mark. Luke begins, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely, for some time to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. That would be an example of the first kind. It's writing to Theophilus, perhaps a ruler, a leader, perhaps somebody who's funded this project. Luke uh, wasn't one of the original disciples or, or one of the original followers. He ends up becoming a Christian through Paul's missionary activity. And so he's a historian and he's doing this research. That's one way these ancient writings would begin. This one, or Mark's gospel, follows kind of the second one. And that would be, there would be a very simple opening line that just clearly states, this is the subject matter of the book. And Mark's gospel begins in this way, okay? Just to remind ourselves, there's four gospels. Gospel stories are an, an announcement or, or uh, um, a historical account about this person, Jesus Christ. And it begins with four of them. The New Testament does. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all of them begin in different ways. Matthew begins with the long genealogy. Luke begins, as we just read, through um, kind of stating his purpose to this benefactor of why he, is, uh, why he has accumulated all of this information and done all this research. John begins by, uh, with this glorious picture of the word becoming flesh. Mark gets right to it. Here's the subject matter. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wants to start at the beginning. Doesn't, doesn't go way back like John does with the, before the incarnation and before the creation of the world. He doesn't go like Matthew does and kind of trace the genealogical history of him. And Mark does as well. He just wants to jump right into it. And then from here, he jumps right into John the Baptist appearing as the forerunner. We'll get to him next week. He wants to jump right in. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so uh, this morning, I want us to look at three things, three names slash titles slash descriptions of Jesus that is evident right there in just those first in that first verse. There's, there's more there uh, for us to, to unpack uh, before we get into the rest of the book. But it's helpful to see this because I think you'll see a theme that runs through all of Mark's gospel. And so the first one uh, is Jesus. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Now it may seem ridiculous. All of us have been Christians for for uh, many of us have been Christians for uh, a long time. And you're like, okay, I know Jesus. You don't have to introduce me to him. But it's helpful for us to be reminded of what his name means. Jesus itself was a, a very uh, common name in the Jewish world in the first century. It'd be like uh, James or John or Robert or Michael in the United States. I had to look that up. See what are the most common names. Hey, do we have a James, Robert, jo uh, John or Robert or a Michael here? That's, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, maybe it's old data I got there. Um, 
So, but Jesus would be like that. It'd be like John. It'd be a very common uh, name, but it's what his name means that's really important. The Greek uh, word for Jesus' name is Jesus, but it really comes from the Hebrew um, word, or is related to this, the Hebrew word for the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, right? Or Y-H-W-H. Or as you see in the Old Testament, the all capital uh, word, Lord, in all capitals. Okay? Because sometimes in the Old Testament, there's the word Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. But then sometimes you will see L-O-R-D in all capitals. That's the covenantal name, we would say, of God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the name when Moses saw the burning bush and the voice in the bush said, Moses, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. And the voice says, I want you to go and say to Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, okay, but uh, we're, we're not even on a first name basis here. Tell, who shall I say sent me? And the voice says, I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. And this is that word, Lord, or Yahweh. Jesus' name is related to that, except it adds the word salvation to it. And so it literally uh, means the Lord saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Or Yehoshua. That's, that's the, uh, the older uh, pronunciation. Sometimes uh, Yeshua. I got a fist bump back, back there from Joshua. So you and Jesus have the same name. Yehoshua, Joshua. That's basically uh, Jesus' name. It comes to us in Jesus because it, it's transliterating from the Greek. And so the spelling is a little bit uh, different that way. Okay. So what's in a name? Jesus' name is central to his identity. And Jesus' name is central to his mission. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Matthew's gospel makes this quite clear when the angel comes to Joseph to tell him that the woman that he's engaged to be married to is going to be with child. And he tells him not to fear. And he goes on to say that she, Mary, will bear a son. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The angels said, you, you, sorry, you don't get to name your firstborn son. God is giving him that name. His name shall be Jesus. And here's why. I'm going to name him what his mission is. To save people from their sins. Okay, so this is, this is a key thing. Because uh, uh, in the... Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day, the Israelites were, were waiting for the promise that God would actually come and would establish his kingdom there and kind of throw off the Roman rulers and the Roman oppressors. 
And so they were looking for a savior, but this savior was more of like a uh, one who was going to throw off the shackles of Rome. Jesus is a savior. He is the Lord saves, but his mission is a little different. It's not to save from Roman oppression. It's to save him from the thing that separates them from their God and creator. So that's Jesus mission. And God's love is actually embedded in this name of Jesus, too. For Paul writes in Romans chapter five, verse eight, God has demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for sinners. Jesus name means Yahweh saves. You should name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the demonstration of God's love is that Jesus will die for sinners. So this is Jesus' mission. Second is Jesus. First is Jesus. Second one is Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not his last name. It is a title. It's not his last name, although in some places it's kind of they've taken the title and it kind of uses as a substitute for Jesus name. But it is a title for Jesus, because normally it would be Jesus of Nazareth. You know, your name would be uh, to identify like you you didn't really have last names. You would be either uh, your name and son of whoever your dad would be. Or if you were from a certain town, often Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, the small little village in which he was from. So Christ isn't his last name. This is actually a title. And the Greek word is Christos. I won't make you say it. Oh, Janet's not in here. I can make you say it. So let's say Christos. Christos, yes. And so this is the word for uh, anoint or anointed one. The Hebrew uh, version of this word in the Old Testament is Mashiach. Or as we have that word kind of transliterated for us is Messiah. So when you see the word Christ or you see the word Messiah, that is Two forms of the same word. And as a matter of fact, some translations will even say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. Because it's recognizing this is a title and it's drawing on the Old Testament reference here. Of anointed one. The anointed one. Now, why is this significant? What what do we mean by anoint? What is Uh, What is that kind of ancient practice of anointing? Well, this would be to pour or to rub oil on the top of a a person or a thing. And it sets that thing or that person apart as holy and consecrated and set apart for God's purposes, for the Lord's purposes. So and it also kind of confers an authority on that person or thing. It denotes somebody as being kind of ceremonially uh, appointed for this office or this use. Now, I say things because some things were anointed in the Old Testament, right? With 
when God given instructions for how the temple was to be built and all of the furniture and furnishings that were to be used in the temple. There was oil that was to be anointed on those various things. But it's also used for persons, too. It's used in a variety of ways, but two main ways that it is used to anoint a person is to um, were for priests and for kings. Now, let me give you kind of a word picture kind of to behind this, this idea of anointing and taking this oil and putting it on the top of someone. How was oil obtained in those days? Oil through olive trees, pulling up the olives, and then they would gather all of the olives and they would put them in presses and crush all of the olives in these stone presses in the ground. And they would have a trough where this uh, the oil then would run off into a separate, like, receiving container. Just cut right out of the ground. Just stone ground right there. I had the chance to go and see some of these in Israel, and it's really phenomenal. It's fascinating. And I remember being in one of these sites and seeing these big massive where they would take a tree and they'd use the weight of the tree and weights on the one end to kind of crush all of these little bags of olives and and crush the oil and the oil would run down this trough and then go into this other trough. And I was sitting there thinking, how in the world are they getting this oil out of this trough? I'm like, you're scraping it. You know, what, how do you get this, you know, oil at the bottom of this trough? And, um, while I was there, kind of, they talked into the background behind that. And then they would say, well, and then what they would do is they would pour water in to the trough and oil and water don't mix, and oil rises to the surface. And so they would fill it up, and then they were able to scrape clean the oil uh, off of the top. And I thought that was a really fascinating and interesting picture. And in both ways, it does kind of convey, in a very kind of earthy way, why this is being used for special objects or for the high priest or for the king. One, oil separates from water, so the oil is separate. Kind of the separating and setting apart of these objects for holy use in God's temple. Or setting apart this individual to lead as priest or to lead as king. The second one is the, the rising to the top. And so the anointing of the oil over the king would be the one, this is the one who has risen to the top and leads us as God's people. So it was used, in a couple of cases, it was used for prophets, but it was uh, used for the high priest, sometimes some other priests in the Old Testament, but it was uh, most definitely a matter of uh, helping to choose and to legitimize kings. And so the Old Testament title, Anointed One, then is a symbol of, for those who are consecrated for that office. We see this, and I invite you to turn with me to uh, Psalm 2 to see a little bit of the how this word anointed one is used for the, in this case, the earthly kings. Psalm 2 is referred to as an enthronement psalm. By that, I mean it was, it was uh, not, not necessarily that it was composed for this purpose, but that they would use this psalm 
uh, whenever there would be uh, an enthroning of a new king. And so Psalm 2 reads this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the, it's the first word there you see there, the Lord, all capitals, right? So this would be Yahweh, and against his anointed one. Here's that word, Mashiach. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this would be Christ or Christos. And so it's describing this situation. The psalm is kind of describing an earthly reality that there are kings and rulers of the world who set themselves up against God, flaunting their rebellion of God and his law and his ways. And worshiping of themselves. And so the psalmist is saying, and it's in that context, that God is kind of warning against these people who are setting themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. And here in this context, that would mean his chosen king. And what is it that they do? Notice that it continues, verse 3, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, flaunting their rebellion. But God ultimately will have the last word. That's the point of the rest of the psalm. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. How many of you get kind of discouraged with the news of the world today? Got it, right? And how many of you think, wow, you'll see some news story, news article, uh, the opinions being thrown out in the political sphere, across any number of things, and you just see like this flaunting of our rebellion against God and how he created things and how he made things. And it kind of distresses you. Verse 4 is a very reassuring verse. That in the midst of the rulers of the earth and the leaders taking counsel together, figuring out ways how we could unshackle ourselves from God and his creation mandate and his rule. The psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Not a funny laugh. But laughing because... He knows he gets the last laugh. He who sits in heaven's laugh, the Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying. And so here is how God is going to a deal with all of those rulers who are oppressing and throwing off the cords of God's rule. And the Lord says this, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. That's the mountain of which the king would rule in Jerusalem and in Israel. My holy hill. See how this is an enthronement psalm. Taking the psalm of worship and saying, Ah, the Lord will have his king sitting on his throne. And so notice the connection here between the anointed and the king. It's 
the Lord and against his anointed who the people are against. And then you have the Lord speaking in verse six. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see these two working in tandem here. The psalmist continues, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make, make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your, pose, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he ends with this warning. Now, kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Notice Lord in verse 11 and kiss the son in verse 12. So here is just one of the many places where this word anointed is used for this servant king who's coming as representative of the one true and living God. And so this is behind this name, Christ. Sometimes it's easy for us to read kind of over this and read Jesus Christ, and we fail to grasp the weight and the significance of who this title being applied to Jesus because of all that it carries in the Old Testament as the one anointed, set apart, separated, and rising to the top who is going to rule over all. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And that's who John, or excuse me, John Mark, Mark introduces us to here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. One uh, thing to move uh, to notice again before we move on, there's a little bit of an overlap here between this anointed one that we saw and king. So we saw this anointed one who was set up as king <coughs> in verse six and that this anointed king is also uh, in the words of the Lord in verse seven, my son. Right. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this anointed king was also the son of Yahweh. And that's what Mark is picking up at the end of verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So just in case you missed it with Christ and Messiah, I want to drive this home more clearly that Jesus is the son of God. And if there's a theme or one identity of Jesus that you can see traced all through Mark's gospel, son of God would probably be it, or at least the most dominant one. We saw verse one, it begins... Beginning of G the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Notice down in verse 11, we read um, at Jesus' baptism. The heavens were torn open. We'll get into this more detail next week. The heavens were torn open. The spirit descending on him like a dove. And verse 11, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. Kind of echoing what the psalmist said in verse Two, 
It's happening at Jesus' baptism. And it echoes this enthronement psalm of Psalm 2. Of the anointed one who is the son of God. Notice the Trinity there too. The spirit descending like a dove. You have the son in the water and a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, which means he has to be a father. So Jesus is the son of God there. Notice in verse uh, Mark 3, verse 11. Great crowds are following Jesus. He heals many who had diseases. They were hearing news about him and gathering around him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, what? You are the son of God. It's an interesting thing. As we're going through Mark's gospel, a lot of this is uh, what you see in Mark's gospel is the question of this series. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And it's interesting is as he's casting out spirits from people, they know exactly who he is. You are the son of God. And it's always interesting. Jesus does this so often. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And I'm sitting here going, why doesn't Jesus want to make people know that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah? Um, I think it's because they would probably misunderstand what that meant. They were thinking of an earthly ruler. And they were try to enthrone him right away and take up arms against Rome. And I think Jesus is saying, I'm not about that. I'm about something else. So Mark 3, notice again, he does the same thing. Chapter 5, verse 7. We're catching this theme again. Jesus casting out the... Um, <coughs> Jesus has this... Um, encounter with an unclean a man with an unclean spirit who's living in the, among the tombs verse 7 and crying out with a loud voice this man says what do you have to do with me jesus son of the most high god the demons knew exactly who he was mark's gospel or excuse me mark chapter 9 we have another encounter or a main event i can't wait till we get to this one Kind of a big event in Mark 9, in, um, beginning in verse uh, 2, where Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John. He leads them up on a high mountain. You know this story, right? It's referred to as the transfiguration. He leads them up on a, on a high mountain. And it says uh, uh, where he was transfigured before them, his clothes became radiant intensely white so that no one on earth could bleach them and he appeared to them with elijah and moses as they were talking with jesus and peter said to jesus rabbi it, it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you one for moses one for elijah for he did not know what to say for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and then again hearkening back to jesus's baptism we have the voice saying this is my beloved son Listen to him. Again, Jesus is the son of God. And it culminates in Mark chapter 15 at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is there hanging on a cross. Passersby are deriding him and mocking him. Wagging their heads. 
The chief priests and the scribes are also mocking him. And this is interesting. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Well, if they would have known the meaning of his name, they would realize how ridiculous what they were mocking him and saying. Notice verse 32. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe in mocking. When Jesus finally gives up his spirit and uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38 of Mark 15, it says, and the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then in verse 39, and when the centurion, a Roman centurion, not Jewish, not a believer, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was what? The son of God. So notice it says so many, so many different uh, people, entities, and beings outside of those who should know who Jesus is and his identity, and yet it's everybody else. It's demons or man people, people possessed with evil spirits, and a Roman centurion saying, "Surely, this is the Son of God." Well, what is? The background behind this. With that, I invite you to turn to, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where you have this uh, promise, and we'd say a prophecy. Second Samuel chapter seven. Now, let me kind of give some a little bit of background of what's going on here. David is king in Israel at this time. God had given him rest from all of his enemies. And so David, the king, gets an idea, says, goes to Nathan, the prophet. And he goes, you know, I dwell in this wonderful house. The ark is been traveling around in a tent. The presence of the Lord has been traveling around in a tent. He goes, I'm thinking of doing, doing a little building project, building a permanent house for the Lord here in Jerusalem. And Nathan, the prophet says, good, sounds good, King. Go ahead and do what you want to do. That night, though, the word of the Lord came, came to Nathan and the Lord says, uh, go and pass this on to David. You, you want to build me a house? I've not lived in a house from the day that I came up out of Israel from uh, came to Israel from Egypt to this day. The tent has been my dwelling. This has been just fine. He goes, you want to build me a house? He goes, you know what you don't understand is I'm trying to build you a house. It's kind of a play on words here. I'm, I'm going to build out of you a dynasty. And so the Lord says, go and tell this to David. And so here are these words. He says to him, verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, there's the play on words. David wanted, I'm going to build you a house, physical structure. He goes, no, I'm going to make you a house, a dynasty, a kingdom. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Sound familiar? Sound like words that were uttered at Jesus' baptism. Sounds like words that were uttered at the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. What's going on here? Well, you know, some are saying, well, this applies to kind of all of the earthly kings from, from David's line. And if they violated the covenant, God would punish them. Well, how does he do this? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. How does this apply to Jesus? I would say it does apply to Jesus because our iniquities were placed upon him. I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all of these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So here is this anointed king in the line of David, who is now God's son. All of this we see reflected here at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the loving savior of the world, the anointed servant who is crowned king, and the son of the living God. In other words, God in human skin that's what mark is all about to get you to know jesus to introduce you to jesus through his works and his words and mark goes very quickly it's the shortest of all the gospels mark is in a hurry he constantly is saying and immediately and immediately and immediately He's wanting to get, he's wanting to pack in for you all that, that Jesus, uh, Jesus did and said. And Mark, we know, was a, a, was a colleague and associate of Peter. And so uh, ancient historians who lived within, really close within this time, tell us that as Peter was recalling living and working and walking with Jesus as his disciple and his apostle, he would tell these stories and Mark was writing them down and then compiling it here and wants to show you Jesus is Yahweh saves the anointed king, the son of God. Why? So that you would know him that way too. So what do we do with this Jesus? I'm going to give you three suggestions here. One, 
to the idea that Jesus is the loving Savior, I would say love him back. Give him your heart. Cast all of your cares on him and your burdens on him because he cares for you. Jesus is the demonstration of God's love for us. And that demonstration took him all the way to the cross where his body was torn. His blood was poured out. He endured tremendous agony so that you wouldn't have to. That you could dwell with God forever. And he did this out of his great love with which he loved us. What do you do with a loving Savior? You love him back. Second, what do you do with an anointed servant? Anointed king? Well, you let him serve you and you let him rule over you. Unlike all of the earthly kings throughout Israel's history who stumble and fall in various ways. And in many ways, as you read through the uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you see these guys do, you know, some do terrible. Some do, hey, you do pretty well. And then all of them collapse and crash and burn at some point. All of them were to make you longing for the promise in second Samuel seven of the one who will rule forever and do so perfectly. The anointed one, the king, who is anointed as the suffering servant and who is anointed as the righteous ruler. So you let him serve you. And you let him rule over you. You submit to him as king. You don't be like the nations and the rulers of the earth trying to cast those cords of his ruling kingship and his law from you. No, you submit to them. So what do you do with a loving savior? You love him back. What do you do with an anointed servant king? You let him serve you and let him rule over you. And lastly, what do you do with the son of God? You worship him. God on earth in human form. You bow down to worship him. For one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's do so, shall we? Let's love and submit and worship Christ. Right now, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I would like for us to end by singing the new song that we uh, sang this morning. So all the, the band members, can you come up, and I will pray, and then we will sing this song uh, together. Father God, we thank you for Mark's words. We're grateful that we have recorded here the words that you wanted to be recorded for us. We thank you that you are introducing us and unpacking for us the identity of your son, the savior of the world, the anointed leader, and the true son of God. May we truly come to know who Jesus is, and may we, through the help of your scriptures, help others to know him too.
And this we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.
Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the Messiah, your son and our Savior. Help us to cling to him and to follow him all of our days. We pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Absolutely.